Hello, No Code Nation. I'm Ayush, and you're listening to my No Code Story. And this is not your typical entrepreneurship podcast. Here, you get to listen to real people who are building cool stuff, all without writing a single line of code. This is the future of independent entrepreneurship, and you have a front row seat. Before we get into today's episode, I have a request to make. I hope this podcast has helped you discover new stories, people, and frameworks. If you like what you hear, do me a favor and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. This will help the pod get discovered by more people, and it lets me know that we're on the right track. Now, on to the show. I am frankly fascinated by some of the projects we feature on the pod. Today, I speak with Leon Young, CEO and founder of Cognis. His team out of Australia is building a no-code platform to, in their words, democratize the development of human transformation apps. Now, what is a human transformation app? These are apps that help people quit smoking, get fit, lose weight, learn to meditate, manage medications, or even help to address mental health issues like anxiety. We get into so many topics around the neuroscience behind this stuff, how social media affects cognitive ability, creating micro-learning apps with no code, and so much more. Let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Leon. Hi, I'm Leon Young, the founder of Cognis, and this is my no-code story. Leon, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to speak with you today. I'm really excited to get into the journey of Cognis, but more specifically, I want to start with your journey. And what we were just talking about was uh, that you're kind of an MVP in the space because you owned the, was it the trademark for the word no-code? The code? trademark, most of the no-code related domains back in the <laughs> 90s. It was funny because I, I'd been interested in the idea of empowering non-programmers to program Actually, since I was a teenager in high school, I, I did a project where I created a, a programming language for non-programmers. And so that, and this idea was always kind of going around in my head. And uh, yeah, in the mid-90s, with another gentleman, I founded an early kind of content management company. And we very quickly built uh, a lot of sort of drag and drop very sophisticated functionality around, you know, being able to drop in e-commerce, being able to drop in forums, being able to drop in email management and all of these different things into a web application. And we were trying to think, well, what do you call this? And we called the product no code. <laughs> and we, in fact, went and registered the trademark yeah, in the US and in Australia and incorporated in, in the US as no code Inc. And yeah, and that's sort of the height of the dot com boom. I guess that's what we were doing. But it was pre SaaS business models. So ironically, we built this product that would have been a perfect SaaS play. But instead, we were trying to uh, license it to web hosting companies and ISPs and people like that who were bundling it with their other products, which all went fine until the dot-com crash and, and half of those guys went out of business in about an eight-week yeah. period. We suddenly found ourselves pretty much a bootstrap business that had decent revenues with no revenues after, <laughs> after, that, <laughs> after that crash and sold the business. And sadly, I think I let the, let the domains and the, and the trademark lapse. So uh, I wish I had those now because I, I could probably just tire on those. <laughs> yeah, you had it all, Leon. You had it all. So uh, is this uh, kind of a trend of being a couple of decades ahead of where everyone else is? Because your journey with Cognis is also in sort of this human transformation space. Yeah. And I want to discuss what that actually means. Uh, but more importantly, you seem to be tackling things that are so 
ahead of where everyone else is in the space and there's to be honest so much so much bs in in this whole area of neuroscience and neuropsychology yeah. everyone and their mom is talking about it and i i really feel like we need someone that can bring the science behind it out to uh, implementations with with a no code spin to them yeah that's uh, that's really interesting that you picked up on that i mean it was one of our struggles with this product when we started building it so just to, just to set the scene of of where cogniz comes from after selling that business no code i started an agency called two and two and that agency specialized in custom development of sophisticated solutions for mental health physical health and education so trying to get away from the you know sort of e-learning mentality of just deliver content and assess to initially applying psychology and how we engage people to deliver some sort of long-term outcome. And we were doing that for about 10 years. And over that 10 years, we moved from a, a psychological approach to what I would call a neuropsychological and neuroscience driven approach. As we started to look at things like memory, and we did a lot of work here in Australia around producing for the, the education department here apps for language learning for for young children so teaching asian languages in australian schools and we kind of tripped over a few things that we were doing in these apps that were according to studies third parties were running delivering incredible results and in how quickly children were were memorizing words and that was when we that was sort of when we made the pivot from this psychological approach this neuroscience driven approach understanding how the brain works how it wires now we are not neuroscientists we are not psychologists but we were very lucky that right from that point we were working for researchers working with nutraceutical companies and things like that and and researchers in the university space who were getting us to build apps around understanding cognitive performance and what affects it and so we were able to build this panel of of, of neuroscientists and neuropsychologists and they became our kind of sounding board. So what what we set out to do when when we started to create Cognos about five years ago was think about how can we take everything that we've learned, all the things that we know we, we would want our customers to apply, but perhaps they're not applying yet, the technical stack, the design process, everything and put it into a product. And this was important to us because we used to have a lot of people knocking on the door wanting to do great things, but they couldn't afford us as, a, as an agency. It was just too expensive to do these things on a custom basis. So that 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 was really what started this journey of, of building the product. And luckily, quite early on, really just through our word of mouth, we started to pick up more and more research customers. So although Cogniz is used for all kinds of behavior change, education and health apps, probably about 70% are either led by a researcher or involve a researcher. And so that's been a great opportunity for us because I think, Ayush, you, you touched on something really important in that neuro babble is everywhere. My social media stream is full of ads, obviously because it's an interest of mine, with products, with pictures of brains and, and, and neuroscience words around them. And you don't have to scratch very far to see that that there's often very little underneath it. And I see a lot of people trying to build their own apps in this sort of space, often without a real and deep understanding of how to apply these things. You know, in psychology, they talk about Dunning-Kruger effect, this idea that people who know just a little bit often think that they're experts. And it's only as you learn more and more, you realize how much you don't know. So I see a lot of 
I see a lot of people who are at the start of that of that journey. We're a lot further down the track. We know a bit. We know there's a lot we don't know, but we get to work with the people who are researching this stuff. And maybe just for your audience now, just to to describe what it is that that that, that Cognis is about. We we've come up with this name, human transformation. And again, just like naming no code all those years ago, it was a case of there wasn't really a word to describe what we what we were doing. It wasn't e-learning it wasn't the traditional things that people were doing through digital channels and the way that i describe it now that is quite simple is that if you go into the app store last year there are 325,000 apps published in the apple app store 25 percent of those fell into the area of health learning and lifestyle now if you look at that 25 percent the majority don't go anywhere and there's a few that are really successful and some of those successful things, you, know, you might think of uh, Duolingo for language learning, Peak for brain training, something like Newman weight loss. You know, there's a number of very successful fitness apps. If you analyze what they do and why they're successful when so many others aren't, it's that they apply the neuropsychology correctly in their user experience design. They know how to get you to do something you're interested in but you're probably not sufficiently motivated to do on your own and to get you to do those things in an optimum way and reflect your journey back to you. So you're engaged in that process and you become a loyal user of their product and you improve your life in some way. So it's those things that we've, that we've basically bundled into this snow code product. So uh, let's kind of qualify that a little bit more though. Mm. So as you describe human transformation, I think, the first parallel that I draw is to a health and wellness app. Yeah. But in reality, what you're enabling is something much beyond that because you could apply this construct of getting people to follow a a breadcrumb, if you will, of their own making to a mm-hmm. wide aspect of learning type applications where, you know, we talked about learning management, so LMS solutions, learning mm. management, which is something that a lot of enterprise organizations invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into um, creating content. I was just talking to a founder earlier who's starting the startup and they find that their pace of development is greater than the pace of people's adoption of uh, of that technology. So it's increasingly more important for for customers, regardless of their industry, to get their end users to adopt products faster. And there's a learning impact to this. In fact, I wanna read something that that I found on on your website in terms of where exactly these solutions might apply. And I wanna call out two things in particular. The first bullet that caught my attention was one where you were talking about it's extrinsic motivation versus intrinsic motivation. And the ability for intrinsic motivation to be infinitely more powerful. Talk about that a little bit in terms of how does how does Cogniz actually help application developers tap into the intrinsic motivation of their end users? Yeah, it, 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 it's an interesting thing. So that extrinsic versus intrinsic. You can imagine a lot of people come to developing apps in these areas, and the first thing they think about is the extrinsic motivators, gamification typically. And that's really powerful. And 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 we have all of those tools, sort of off-the-shelf gamification tools in the product. But we know as effective as that is, if you can drive intrinsic motivation, it's so much deeper. Now, to be honest, there's only so much we can do in the product. And really what we're trying to do in the platform is to allow the app creator, the subject matter expert, to really concentrate 
on their expertise, which is that subject, and then giving them all of those tools to think about how they're engaging people. And often the intrinsic motivation is more about someone actually understanding the journey that they're on. So if you think about some of those, whether it's a health and wellness app or a language learning app, those ones that are really effective, sure, they will usually have the gamification. They'll have the, you know, they would call it in the, in the learning world, the chocolate coated broccoli, the, the thing to get you, give you the reward. But they will also be doing more subtle things in terms of reflecting your progress back, making you aware of the progress that you've made because that is the thing that will really engage you more deeply in the process. So it's not just about getting getting the nice, you know, badge, but it's about understanding that this thing that I wanted to do in the first place, I'm actually making progress on it. Now you always have this this problem and around kind of motivation versus the ease of doing something. So when someone wants to learn something or wants to make a change, there has to be a certain degree of motivation to get them over that, over that hump, to make them commit that effort. So in a product like this, we try to make the effort as simple as possible by using hyper-personalization to really level content and things like that to get, get it to the optimum point. But if you've got the, the caveat I always say to people is if you've got an audience that just doesn't care and isn't motivated, there's not at that point there's nothing you can do right so so it's always this sort of axis of looking at motivation versus versus the ease of completing the tasks that you want to complete so when someone uses cogniz to develop an application for for something let's say you know i have this app on my watch that allows me to track uh, my fasts for intermittent fasting right so yeah. it's something that people are really into these days and there seems to be a flurry of applications supporting it. So that could be an example of something someone's creating. So let's say we're talking about someone like me who's a who's a novice in the space, doesn't have a healthcare background, but wants mm. to create something because I'm interested in the space and I know others that might benefit from something like this. If I choose to go and develop on Cogniz, do I then also get some kind of access to your ecosystem of experts that will then help me build some constructs into the application or is that already built in are you providing that access through the product both to some extent so we're providing the access in terms of all of these different what we think of as, as widgets to drive behavior are already built so just to give give your audience an understanding of what level we're at at the no-code journey, we we extract the coding to the user interface at a very significant level. And what I mean by that is it's not trying to do say what Bubble does, where where they take coding and turn it into a visual language. In our product, it's much more about best of breed tools. You're configuring them, picking what ones you want, setting the rules around them, setting the AI rules in very simple terms and testing what works. And so in terms of what the product gives you, not just it's not just about having those different widgets available, but it's being able to try them and change very quickly. And also the ability to look through our insights panel, which is like our data dashboard, and start to recognize behavioral groups. So you can recognize that certain things are working with certain types of people. And then you can start to personalize the journey someone has in the app. So the important thing, you know, if you take that, if you take the intermittent fasting, you know, I do the 16, eight thing myself. Now, 
something that might drive me forward to do it would just be to see the other health outcomes that I'm having to be able to track that and monitor that. But someone else may be much more motivated by the gamification or competing with a friend or, or, or something of that nature. So having those tools where you can try that out is really key. I should say that even if you have a good understanding of the science, my experience of it is, is that everyone is still working this out, is that personalization is really important. So that ability to test, to iterate, really quickly and to then personalize the experience for different audiences is key or to decide that you just want to talk to one audience and do that really well in terms of access to experts yes we have we have a panel and in fact more people than are on the panel that we have access to so they can consult on projects but obviously that gets a little bit more expensive once you start to go down that line because we're talking about you know senior university professors in most cases but what we're trying to do for the average person building on this is give them the tools and let them experiment and find what works. And how does hardware play into this equation? Because uh, I know we've been talking about software quite a lot, but mm. the whole aspect of health and wellness applications is now getting more and more intertwined with hardware in general. You talk about blood oxygen monitoring, you talk about you know heart rate monitoring, and and so many other use cases that are just enabled by a simple watch to, you know, blood glucose, which is kind of the the silver lining in a sense for for most people having quick and easy access to that using, I think I even saw an ad for for something that I can breathe into and breathe out of. And it gives me a readout of, you know, I don't know, a bunch of different factors based on Mm. my breath, which include, you know, oxygen levels and stuff like that. So, how does an application that's built on the the Cognos platform interact with hardware? Well, that's the really exciting thing for us, right? So we make everything accessible through through APIs. And I think what you will see over the next couple of years, and we will start to include more and more off-the-shelf integrations with wearables, with IoT as well, the things that you have in your house. Because at the moment, the the phone is the thing that we have with us all the time. It's, it's it's ubiquitous, it's universal. It's a really great way of engaging people. It's not providing that same level of feedback. And for us, we see Cognos, you know, our, our, our sort of part of our big hairy audacious goal is to be this like the Salesforce or zero of human transformation. So we've designed a product to be a hub that we can plug all these different things into. and installable apps and, and web responsive apps are just the are just the beachhead for us we've started to see people interface iot devices more and more you know we have people building children's apps where they have play-based devices that they use in the room that talk to their cognis app and that sort of thing but what you're ta- talking about is what really excites me and there's some things in the works at the moment with a few different researchers where they're looking at different types of wearables and you're right the the area is exploding the more biofeedback you can get, obviously the the greater the opportunity to understand the efficacy of what you're doing. And often people building on Cognos are, are building companion products as well for pharmaceuticals or nutraceuticals or things of this nature. So we we've always had this holistic vision that we want people to be not just thinking about solving a problem in a very narrow way but thinking about all of the other things that they can do with their user to drive that positive outcome so if you were to think about someone building an app for diabetics okay we want to track their medication use we want to 
track their lifestyle. Uh, we want to know what's going on in terms of their movement, in terms of all that sort of thing. But we also want to understand broader, I guess, wellness indicators like social interaction, obviously diet, all of those sorts of things. The more data points we can pull in and the more that and the more that the app creator can help someone address their issue in a broader sense, then the greater the outcome is. To date, mostly what we see is people building apps that are that are working on, you know, one narrow area to address a problem. But more and more, those are getting broader. Uh, it's interesting for us. Um, I mean, the main use of Cognizant at the moment, and this was never our intention it's just where it's been picked up has been in mental health so lots and lots of mental health apps built on cognizance and we're, we're based here in australia and it, it may be a bit of a reflection on australia that there's four different apps built on cognizance that are interventions for problem gamblers and it's really interesting looking at the different approaches that that that, that these experts are taking in in the area and you know some of that is about addressing the behavior directly but a lot of it is about addressing broader lifestyle factors that might lead someone to be in a state of mind with that gamble in the first place yeah where i think you're just what you're touching on there we're just scratching the surface and five years from now it's going to be a very different world in terms of what we deliver now this creates all with all of these opportunities becomes a whole lot of risk around data privacy around how you deal with the most intimate information about someone's life and about their interactions and i think that as for the for the broader tech industry that's a, a bigger thing that we have to confront you know for us it's very deep in our dna that we have that our customers have to abide by certain privacy requirements, that everything is absolutely explicit to the end user in terms of how their data is being used. But I think it's a, consumers need to really start to think about this with wearables and things like that. What are they connecting it to? Where's that data going? How's it being used? And I think you bring up several good points there. Let's talk about the opportunity for a second because um, mm. what you described there though tells me that the sky's the limit. Mm. My wife, for example, is an, is a speech uh, therapist, right? So she's worked with children that have speech delays and several of her colleagues work with uh, children to help identify learning disorders early. Right. And one of the ways they do that is by, you know, recording sessions where essentially it amounts to a test for the child, right? But they look at how the child's interacting with various elements, you know, talk to them and see what the responses responsiveness is. And based on that, they make a recommendation. Uh, that whole area is ripe for disruption because it's a very manual process right now where someone needs to actually physically be present and and they need to administer the test. And then from there, they also need to take separate time, in some cases that's not even billable, to document their recommendations and, and so on. So th there's kind of a, a load in the system that's that exists on both sides there's a load on the end user side where you have this in some situations inconvenience of either going to a, a, a pre-designated spot or having someone come to your place to evaluate your mm. child you may then have some load on the therapist side where you know they're getting paid for the session and for for administering the test but maybe not for uh, documenting the reports and that in itself is a manual process and and then we're not even talking about liabilities and stuff like that so when you get into this contrast that with a potential solution that could you know mail someone a test kit 
have strategically mm. positioned video cameras that then allow someone to remotely administer that test using the using the call it IoT components that are in the test mm. kit and then use that data to then automate some of the back-end reporting processes and make sure that there's manual intervention at the end stage just to also have final sign-off, that could really be disruptive. And I'm sure there are so many other industries that could benefit from from this kind of disruption. I really think sky's the limit, but your point about data privacy is a really important one. A lot of consumers are getting more aware about how their data is being used, but even for app builders, for example, it's important to think about what are some of the privacy requirements in the country where their users reside. Mm. And the fact that those requirements might be completely different uh, in one yeah. region versus versus the next around the world. And the nature of these applications is that they tend to be global. So when you're creating an app, it's important to think about this from an end user perspective and make sure that your, your application solves for some of these problems. I want to spend some time talking about learning and mm. in order to talk about learning and some of the neuroscience behind it, it's important to talk about one of the biggest disruptors to learning. And uh, you talk about this on your website, you're talking about the rise of social networks. And mm. uh, you actually talk about the power of social learning. But I want to start with the disruption that yeah. social network <laughs> applications have been causing with the quote unquote, infinite scroll. And what, what are your thoughts about this and the impacts that social is having to learning as a as a uh, as a mode? It's it's really fascinating. Going back to when we kind of made that pivot to thinking about the neuroscience as well as the psychology of, of, of learning and behavior change. And part of the reason, I guess, that 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 I was interested in seeing Cognis used in interventions for problem gamblers is that when I when I was sort of looking around six, seven years ago at where technology was being really used effectively to manipulate behavior. It was two things. It was the gambling industry. So what goes on with, you know, poker machines or, or now in a gambling app, you know, that that they really understand the neuroscience of how to keep you doing something in this case that you don't necessarily want to do. And the other thing that was emerging at that time, that was really at the point where Instagram had kind of flipped from being this photo sharing thing to, to being this primary soap network for young people at that time. And that infinite scroll is a really interesting thing to look at what, what is going on in the brain. And it's very much like flow. So probably most of your in, listeners are broadly aware of the, the idea of flow or getting in the zone, that, that lovely thing that we all love when we're working on something difficult and we become hyper-concentrated on it. And before you know it, several hours have gone past and you've made tremendous progress. That's a really positive set of wiring in your brain that is being hijacked when you get into these scrolling things. And what's happening with the scrolling is that you're looking for an immediate sort of reward or a, a dopamine, what they would call an anticipatory dopamine reward. So you're looking for that next great thing which you never quite find. So, but you find something that's close to it. And that's very much the same as, as, as what they do with you know digital gambling where where you're playing the poker machine they'll keep giving you small rewards because that thing keeps you focused and playing on until you get the big reward and really that's what social media is doing that's what TikTok's doing you're sitting there waiting for the big payoff that never quite comes and you chew up all of these hours now that's really interesting firstly in a, a sort of proof point about how the brain works with this type of interaction perhaps in a, in a negative way 
but then the interesting thing is well how does how is the brain being rewired by that when you think about children and learning what is happening to their attention span and this is for me an area of personal deep interest i didn't know until i started working with this in this area and working with lots of neuroscientists that i'm adhd chronically adhd actually when i go into the official dsm test and i see and i can see now that i have been my my, my whole life and i've been lucky in that i've had found ways to actually leverage that and use that rather than that being you know a huge hurdle for me but you can see what these things are doing actually driving adhd like behavior and inability to concentrate that 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 kind of jumping around and so i find that quite disturbing as you know the idea of uh, of kids having huge amounts of time involved in this so i think those very basic things that 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 we talk about so much just limiting screen time limiting the the amount of time doing these things is key thinking about how to use those things in a positive way in the learning experience is really important and where it's going to affect education i think is our brains are plastic and you have to accept that your audience at the class isn't the same as our generation was when we were young right so the modes of learning have to reflect that and we've known for a long time that for instance seven minutes is the kind of the optimum time that you want to teach a child something much more than that and they're starting to lose interest so so there's been a movement for a long time to try and package things up into smaller bits but there's this sort of trade-off i think for educators and thinking about how they how they live where the learner is and do those things in that more package concentrated way but at the same time you don't want to drive a child to being even more like that you want to also give them exercises and things that help them with long-term concentration that help them learn how to complete tasks and things of that nature so i, I think that's that's a phenomenal segue into something that has been on my radar which is uh, micro learning I want to see what your take is on this. And you kind of alluded to the fact that things are starting to get packaged into smaller and smaller bite-sized chunks. There's there's obviously a, a theory that Malcolm Gladwell popularized about 10,000 hours and that being the basis of expertise and, and one of the things that actually points to the ability for, for experts to do what they do is 10,000 hours of practice. Um, if you apply that to the learning realm, there are various techniques that have become more popular these days. Spaced repetition is one of them. There are these, mm. you know, I think it was the, the app was called Anki Droid or something like that when it came out. But it's been around since like the early 2010s where it's an app that, that allows you to record things and then brings them up at regular intervals of time to right. help you learn. There's obviously the Feynman technique of, of learning by teaching as if you would mm. uh, a five-year-old or something like that. And then there's another technique called the sleep sandwich that that uh, talks about the impact of sleep to learning mm. cycles, where you basically pack sleep between two different pockets of learning. And apparently that allows you to be more efficient with both those pockets of learning. One is the anticipation of the sleep, and the second one is the benefits derived from, from mm. that small amount of sleep that you get in between. What types of applications do you see microlearning having in the future? And how can someone leverage neuroscience to create an application that, that helps people not only learn better, but also in smaller chunks? Yeah, it's, there's, there's a whole lot of things to unpack in what, <laughs> what you just said. Uh, to, to directly answer your question, you know, I, I think just by nature of, of, of modern lifestyles, how we're learning on mobile devices and, and things of that nature. Creators of learning solutions have to think 
more and more in terms of how they chunk these things down. Now, how that applies to the neuroscience of learning is a, is a little bit a little bit more complex. So when you talk about things like the role of sleep, where we know that is absolutely critical, we don't know, or the neuroscientists will tell you they don't know exactly how how and how that works. There's a lot of theories about it. There's not a lot of concrete evidence. We, we There's this understanding that our brain prunes at night, so we delete a lot of memories at night. There's this whole issue that then when we remember something, we construct all the bits in between that aren't in our brain anymore, which is why you and I might talk about this conversation in a year's time and remember it quite differently. You've got all of these different things different things at play and this comes back to that idea i think if you're working on an app or working on a digital solution that you you have to be able to test and iterate and you have to bring some numerical or scientific discipline to what you're doing and actually look at the data and look at what's driving the outcome because there are all these different techniques and we facilitate a lot of those techniques you talked about spaced repetition i mean the interesting thing spaced repetition has been around since the 1930s that was a, it was a psychologist who just observed didn't understand what was going on in the brain but just observed this thing that if you memorize something and then leave a little bit of time so that you start to forget it and then you go back and revise it that you get this greater outcome now we understand what's actually going on there which is that it's about neuroplasticity and it's about the fact that your brain needs to work hard to know that something is important and to put a thick neural pathway in so basically what happens is if you memorize something from a book tonight to do an exam tomorrow you'll end up with a whole lot of thin neural pathways and you'll get through the exam tomorrow you remember those things three months from now you won't remember those things and they're actually deleted from your brain mostly unless you revise them at the optimum time and, and that's why you have to wait for a little forgetting to occur so that your brain works hard when you revise it that's why sleep is really important too because of the role role of memory in there i'm going to address one other thing though because you, you touched on one of my um pet myths around the around the 10 well Malcolm, the way that malcolm gladwell has described that 10,000 hour effect so the so you may have heard this before the the research that he's referring to was looking at young violinists and yep. it was looking at them at i think 17 or 18 years of age something like that and it found the ones who were who were really good who went on to have a, have a career as violinists had 10,000 hours of experience on average at the age of 18. Now, if you'd looked at those same kids at 15, they would have had 6,000 hours. If you looked at them at 20, it would have been 13,000 hours or something like that. So the 10,000 hours is not the important thing. Important thing is the dedication and the time and the and and the continuation of that so i just always have to raise that because i find it often people think there's something magical that happens at ten thousand hours and it's more just that people who reach ten thousand hours have put in the hard work and will continue to put in the hard work basically yep uh, absolutely i think one of the things that i was reading about recently was uh, how a recent study i think might be a 2019 study debunked the ten thousand hour rule saying that just ten thousand hours of practice alone is not sufficient and is not a good predictor of someone's ability to perform at an expert level. But what it did find is going the other way, most experts, just by a function of how they practice and how much they practice, tend to have 10,000 hours of, of practice. And 
I don't think they found that 10,000 was the right number. They, they found that they were talking about a significantly large number. And I'll be sure to find a link to that study and include it in the show notes here. Uh, I would like to see that. That would be interesting. Also, obviously, with things like that, it's a lot about the quality of study. So when you come from the other direction, like that original study, where they're looking at people who achieve a certain level of expertise, they have a certain number of hours. It doesn't take into account all of the people who have that number of hours and don't achieve that expertise. You know, my, my, my passion in my spare time is playing guitar and at 52 years old, I'm sure I've done more than 10,000 hours, but you don't want to listen to me playing guitar. I'm still not very good at it. <laughs> good point. So let's, let's talk a little bit about fundraising and the Cognis journey so far. So I know last year, was it last year you, you ran a crowdsourced mm. funding campaign that was really successful. Uh, talk to me about your experience of generating funds through crowdsourcing versus what you might have done going down the traditional route and is the traditional route of venture-backed funding still something that you're looking to pursue going forward yeah okay so yes yes it is and the reason that we haven't pursued it was interesting i actually heard of one of your other podcasts with an with another bootstrap before you touched on on this issue that so we are bootstrapped basically until the end of last year we went out and did this this csf round in australia we were in a very unique position having had a services business in this area we were able to win customers before we'd even really built the product and we were able to build the product by working with real life customers and getting paid to build the features that they needed and so that gave us a, a way to achieve a certain amount of market fit and create a deep complex product that we never would have been able to create through the traditional sort of angel to VC path. If we'd had to go out and raise a very small amount of money and build an MVP and then monetize it and then go into a, a late seed in the series A, you, you just couldn't build a product like Cognos because it takes years and years and years of research and development. So we were lucky that we had that other model. Now, pursuing that other model, and I think this is what you touched on in, in your other, in another podcast, it, it puts you in a difficult box as far as venture capitalists are concerned. They're always concerned that a bootstrap company doesn't have the right kind of DNA to grow fast. Whereas from my position, it's about we've been able to take the time to get the product right, to know that, that it works, to know that to know that people, you know, who see the product just buy it without any sales process. And we've only been ready to think about scaling in the last year. And even with that, we've gone and done a CSF round mainly to fund building some of the other tools that we need to scale. So for instance, we're building the Cognos Academy, which is not just an academy on how to use Cognos, but it's an academy on all the things we've been talking about today on human transformation and how to apply those things and, and make all of that scalable. So we're at this sort of mid stage of, of putting those things around our product that make it scalable. And we will go out and raise a, you know, a much larger some of money later this year or early next year and probably through more traditional means i don't know that we will even attempt to raise it locally we're in, in australia like the the, the the vc community here is maturing fast but i i just feel like we don't fit in the easy boxes that that, that that they're looking for but when i look internationally i see i see other vcs who are, who are thinking bigger and thinking about these these larger long-term problems the irony is to me I, I would think that from an investor's point of view 
the exciting thing about Cognis is it's really hard for someone to compete with us. They've got to not only have the 10 years of expertise before they start building the product, they've got to be able to spend years in market building and testing and not worrying about growth unless they're just going to try and copy what we do. And even that would be very, very hard because as a, as a, you know, as a no code product, you only see the tip of the iceberg. Yep. The really complicated things are all, are all underneath and not, not visible to the user of the product. So I actually think it's a great strength, but it probably does make mean that we have to be a bit more creative in, in how we raise capital. Now the CSF was uh, a fantastic experience for us because it allowed us to launch the product basically you know before that our product flew under the radar as i said we, we had decent revenues with bootstrap but we we relied on word of mouth it was really all our customers hear about us from someone else who's using the product and so it was kind of like our launch to the world and a chance to do a bit of media and at the same time locally you know we pick up 300 investors in our home market in australia who are now all invested in the success of this product so that word of mouth thing is just amplified and as a as a company sitting in a smaller country like Australia, it's been really interesting how this has got us onto the radar internationally. So I'm taking meetings every week with 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 major investors and and things like that globally. We're being invited on you know lots of podcasts and things like that, whereas probably seven eight months ago, no one knew who we were, even though we've been around for five years. So that that part of it has been really exciting and, and successful to us and i would i would suggest to anyone who wants to run a, a small capital raising in a closed defined amount of time and get a whole lot of other benefits out of it to seriously think about csf i would also say though to an entrepreneur thinking about csf do your due diligence first and work out how to stretch to set up your company in a way that it doesn't create problems for you down the road which we were very careful about in terms of you know not being held up by minor shareholders and things like that that would put off big investors later but overall thoroughly recommended as a process that's great to hear and it's it's also really heartening to see the the growth trajectory that your company's on and the fact that you're looking to grow even more potentially with a traditional venture-backed route in, in the future. I had so much fun talking to you, Leon. I got to be honest, uh, this is the first human transformation or health and wellness-oriented no-code application that I've uh, discussed on the podcast. And I think uh, we got into so many topics that, that are probably new to the audience, but also hopefully sparked a lot of ideas for how they could leverage some of the neuroscience and yeah. and other constructs that are available while at the same time applying a no-code angle to it, creating something of value. Before we end, why don't you give our audience a handoff to where they can learn more about Cogniz and if they were to follow you for updates, what's the best channel? Yeah, uh, just follow Cogniz's Twitter account uh, at Cogniz HQ. And if you're at all interested, come to the Cogniz site, sign up for a free trial. We'll introduce to a customer success person and, and you can have a play with the product. You know, we're always interested in, in, in people's feedback and experience looking at the product too. So, you know, with this, with the community that I suspect you've got listening to this, that would be really interesting to get that feedback. I'd also say, you know, hopefully there are other people in the no code community. We're really interested in building up those relationships because as you touched on earlier, that ecosystem is going to be key in, in in this area. So so you know we're really interested in in how we can partner with other 
other people in the in the no code sphere in terms of interfacing with what they're doing and things of that nature. Sounds great. Uh, thanks once again for taking the time, Leon. It was such a pleasure having you on. And thank you very much. It was very enjoyable. All right, that was the show. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed it and got a ton out of it. If you did, there are two things you need to do. Number one, make sure you subscribe to the show to get notified when a new no-code story drops. And number two, I want to ask you a favor. Who's the one person you know who would absolutely benefit from hearing this story? Text them right now and send them to mynocodestory.com and reference this episode. Maybe they're an entrepreneur, maybe they can use this episode to level up at their job, or maybe they're just someone who loves creating new things. Do it. Subscribe and then send them the text. Make a difference. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next one.